Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Witness Docs from Stitcher. After months of waiting, Alan called me up and said, well, the testing has been done. And there are talcum powder particles in your ovarian tissue. So we had all the pieces of the puzzle. We had the pathology, we had the science, we had the the clinical picture, and we had the usage. I knew we needed to have all fours if this was going to be the first case against Johnson & Johnson, and we, we had it. I'm Natasha Del Toro, and this is Verified. Alan Smith now had proof that talc was present in Dean Berg's cancerous tissue. This evidence was going to be the foundation of their lawsuit against Johnson & Johnson. But before Alan filed, he wanted to be sure that Dean and her family really knew what they were getting into by taking on J&J. And I explained to them, this is going to be a big endeavor. And I told her this is going to be a bigger endeavor than most because she is the first one and what a large corporation Johnson Johnson was. And we, again, went through, they're going to belittle her. They're going to belittle me. They're going to belittle the science. And she was absolutely up for it. And she had told me in no uncertain words, and I'm not quoting her, but that she wanted to do this on behalf of other women. So in December 2009, Three years after Dean was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, Allen filed the case with the court in South Dakota, Berg versus Johnson & Johnson. It accused the company of failing to warn customers about the risk from their talc products. And the suit claimed the talc caused Dean's cancer. Then I sent out some discovery. And discovery, for those that don't know in the legal field, It's just a series of questions that I ask them. And Johnson & Johnson is required to answer. Plus, provide Alan with any company documents related to the case. And this is where I send a request saying, uh, please send me any and all information that you have, emails, letters, memos that you have in your possession regarding talc and ovarian cancer. A few months later, a small package arrived in the mail from Johnson & Johnson's lawyers. Allen's paralegal, Pat Woodward, opened it. Wow, we got in disks, several, with thousands and thousands of documents and thousands and thousands of pages. I was a solo practitioner working in a thousand-square-foot office in Mississippi, And I get inundated with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pages of internal emails, memos, documents, studies, all kinds of stuff. We printed 
and printed and printed uh, so that we would know what we wanted to use for trial for exhibits. Um, and there was so much, and we had to narrow it down as much as possible. A big law firm might have a whole team of people reviewing and sorting that kind of material. In this case, it was just Alan and Pat sifting through thousands and thousands of documents by hand. And so what I would do is I would take one of those big stacks, sit it by my desk, and each day I would take, you know, one piece of paper off of it and look at it. If I thought it was a hot document, I'd stick it on a folder on my desk. If it wasn't, I'd wad it up and throw it in the corner, right? So that was really how sophisticated my machinery was. Pouring over these documents, hour after hour, it started to hit home for Alan how small time he was. Johnson & Johnson had near-endless resources to fight him. They were making over $60 billion a year in sales at the time. And Alan suspected J&J would spend as much as they needed to crush this case because baby powder was one of their core products. Baby powder was not J&J's biggest seller or their most profitable line, but it was a product that customers connected with and associated with the company, probably more than any other. The company essentially built its brand on the warm, good feelings that Baby Powder created, starting almost 130 years ago. While traveling through the Rocky Mountains by train, Robert Wood Johnson struck up a conversation with the railway surgeon. This is from a video J&J put out to celebrate the company's history. The surgeon said that railroad workers were often injured from accidents in remote areas and far away from medical help. Robert listened, and in response, Johnson & Johnson created the first first aid kits. The video describes how these kits included sterile bandages and medicated plasters, sort of like early Band-Aids. The idea was to supply workers with bandages they could apply right there on the job whenever they got a ding or a scrape. The problem was people started getting rashes. The plasters irritated their skin. So Johnson listened again. But instead of changing the plasters, he sent them another product, tins of talcum powder to soothe the irritation. Consumers replied that not only did the powder soothe the irritation from the plasters, it also soothed their baby's diaper rash. So, in 1894, Johnson's baby powder was put on the market, giving birth to our baby products business. So essentially, the video shows how Robert Johnson got his company into baby powder by accident. But it was a huge hit. Talcum powder is made of, well, talc. It's the world's softest known mineral and can be ground to this fine, silky powder that's remarkably absorbent. Spread it over your skin and it'll keep you dry and ease chafing. Its early advertising really focused on the feel of the powder. Johnson's, the softest baby powder there is. (laughs) 
J&J found more and more ways to build out its baby empire. Creams for newborns, baby oil, no-tear shampoo. Johnson & Johnson became the baby company. But why limit yourself to just babies? As the company grew, it developed products for every stage of life and signaled that to consumers. Johnson & Johnson isn't just a baby company. We're a keep-you-healthy-your-whole-life company. J&J created Neutrogena and Lubriderm for skin care, the mouthwash Listerine, Benadryl for allergies, the painkiller Tylenol. It also made a whole world of drugs and medical devices. And from the day you're born, we never stop taking care of you. Hear that language? Taking care of you just like a parent or a member of the family. There's trust there. It's a promise that J&J is a brand that puts people first. And that promise isn't, or wasn't meant to be, just an idea. The company made its promise to put customers first explicit. During the Great Depression, Robert Wood Johnson II started talking and writing about how companies should be doing more for their customers, their employees, and their communities. He gave his workers a 5% raise, trying to inspire other companies to follow his lead. And he asked President Roosevelt to pass a law raising wages and limiting work hours. Just before he took the company public in 1944, he took those ideas about how companies have social responsibilities and drafted a credo a guiding principle for Johnson & Johnson. Even today, that credo is a very big part of J&J, a point of pride for the company. It's all over its website and marketing materials. We believe our first responsibility is to to the the doctors, doctors, nurses, and patients, to mothers and fathers, and and all all others who use our products and services. Ralph Larson was J&J's CEO in the 80s and 90s, In this corporate video, he said the credo guided every decision the company made. I viewed that name Johnson & Johnson as a trust mark, not a trademark. It was a trust mark because when moms and, and fathers use our products on their babies, they need to trust it. When people take our medicines, they need to trust it. Every good and healthy relationship is built on trust. But in 1982, that public trust was put to the test. Here in Chicago, what started as a series of mysterious unrelated deaths 48 hours ago has resulted in the biggest drug warning in U.S. history. It all began Wednesday morning when 12-year-old Mary Kellerman died. Within 12 hours, there were five people dead in suburban Chicago. A sixth would die later, all victims of extra-strength Tylenol capsules laced with cyanide. No one knew who could have put the poison into those bottles of Tylenol. The FDA ordered Johnson & Johnson to recall two lots or batches of Tylenol. But J&J quickly decided that wasn't enough. Instead, the company pulled every single bottle of Tylenol off store shelves throughout the U.S. So we pulled 330 million tablets off the shelf. We went from 34% market share to zero overnight. 
Alan Hilberg led the Johnson & Johnson crisis management team at the time. He tells business students the choice was actually pretty simple. We didn't have a crisis plan. But quite frankly, we had something more valuable than a crisis plan. We had their credo. And the credo became our crisis plan. Another thing Johnson & Johnson did, they immediately created new packaging sealed in three different ways so customers could feel sure that no one had tampered with their bottles. J&J's Tylenol recall cost them almost $300 million in today's dollars. But for that, the company got back so much more. The public trusted them again, and perhaps more than they ever had. Tylenol sales actually increased And many people still remember this story as the time a big corporation did the right thing. Working on Dean's case, Alan knew all about the Tylenol story and all about the company's golden reputation. And Alan also knew that would matter in the courtroom. He was going up against one of the biggest and most respected companies in the world, the baby company. Allen would have to convince the jury that the company known for doing the right thing, for some reason, chose not to this time. He'd have to prove that there was a link between talc and cancer, that Johnson & Johnson knew the risks, and despite that, encouraged women to use talc on their babies and on themselves. That's what was in Alan's mind as he pulled paper after paper from the huge stacks of discovery documents on his desk. He was scanning for anything that would help make his case, anything that looked like a cover-up. And as he started sifting through the papers... I probably got through about a third of the way of the first stack. I started seeing some emails and some internal memos that I could not believe. He found a letter dated September 1997 from a J&J consultant to a manager on the company's toxicology team. And he starts off by saying, Dear Mike, there is a German saying which translates as follows. Quote, A true friend is not he who beguiles you with flattery, but he who discloses your mistakes before your enemies discover them. The letter criticized statements about the safety of talc by the Cosmetic, Toiletry, and Fragrance Association. That's an industry group, and Johnson & Johnson was a very influential member. And I'm going to read it exactly. This statement is also inaccurate to phrase it euphemistically. He goes on to say, at that time, there had been about nine studies, more by now, published in the open literature that did show a statistically significant association between hygienic talc use and ovarian cancer. He says, anybody who denies this risks that the talc industry will be perceived by the public like it perceives the cigarette industry denying the obvious in the face of all evidence to the contrary.
here was a medical consultant that J&J had hired saying its trade group was ignoring studies showing a link between talc and ovarian cancer, that it was mischaracterizing information it released to the public about the safety of talc. The letter suggested other, more nuanced arguments that J&J could make in its defense of talc that it could better defend. Still, it was an exciting find for Alan. But he knew he was going to need more, a lot more, to build his case. So he kept reading and making notes. And because civil cases move very slowly, years went by. There were motions to dismiss the case, motions to extend deadlines. Then three months before the scheduled trial date, Alan got a call from Johnson & Johnson. They wanted to meet with him and Dean. Well, we went out to Rapid City. You walk into the room and there's all these lawyers looking at you. I mean, it's a huge conference, wood table, dark, you know, room that's 12 feet long. And there are six seats on one side, six seats on the other, and two at the end. And we have the mediator is sitting at the head of the table. And we have two people sitting on the far end of the table when we walk in. And that is the defense attorney. And he's in his $5,000 suit again and hair perfect and tasseled shoes and the whole bit again, the whole costume. And before the mediator could speak, the female that was sitting next to the defense attorney said, my name is so-and-so, and and let me just tell you something, Dean. And she spoke directly to my client, which I don't ever like any other attorney doing. She goes, I just want to tell you that Johnson & Johnson makes something billion dollars a year. We employ however many tens of thousands of people worldwide. We've got however many hundreds of subsidiary businesses throughout the world that do everything from baby products to pharmaceutical drugs and da-da-da-da-da. She goes on to say, we don't believe this litigation has merit, but we're here to see if we can resolve it. Johnson & Johnson, as I told you, one of the largest corporations in the world, and this litigation and you are a blip on our radar screen. That's how we start an amicable settlement conference. I said, so Mrs. Berg, we have come to the conclusion that most likely this talcum powder had nothing to do with your cancer, but we are willing to pay you $800,000. $800,000. Now in exchange, Dean would have to agree to never speak publicly about the case or about her opinion that talc had caused her cancer. And I said, okay, are you going to put a warning label on the the talcum powder? No. Are you going to take it off the market? No. I said, so what was the purpose of this then? And they said, well, we just really don't want any of this getting out there. You know, this is to be kept hush. So I... I said, excuse me, I need a break here, just a minute. So Dean got up and went outside with her husband, Jim. They walked around the streets of Rapid City. They needed to think and talk things over. And I said, you know, Jim, I didn't go into this to make $800,000 and then just close the case, walk away, and forget it. I said, this was all about preventing cancer in other women, and getting it out to the public that talcum powder is a carcinogen, period. 
and that this is most likely what caused my cancer and is probably causing other women's cancers. I said, I am not going to settle for money and then make some type of a statement that I can never talk about this in public again. They decided on that walk to refuse the money, to say no to Johnson & Johnson and their $800,000. So I walked back in the room again, and they said, okay, well, we're willing to go to $1.3 million. What do you think about that? With that money, Dean and Jim could pay off their car and their mortgage. They could do some of the traveling that they'd always talked about. And I said, you still do not want to take this off the market. No. And you're still not going to put a warning label on it. No, we're not. I said, I'll see you in court in September. Stood up and walked out of the room. I felt this relief on my shoulders. It was like, I'm going to fight this. I'm not giving up. I don't care what they say to me and how they try to intimidate me or pay me off. I said, I'm going to fight this and I'm going to meet them in court and I'm going to see what happens. We should say here, we asked J&J for their version of what happened in this meeting, and we didn't get a response. But Dean's decision to take Johnson & Johnson to court was actually a huge deal. It's extremely rare for civil cases to go to court. For every 100 civil suits, only a few will make it to a trial. Now, that's because court cases are expensive and slow, but it's mainly because trials are huge risks. You never know what a judge or a jury will decide. As Alan drove back to Mississippi to start preparing for the biggest case of his life, the reality of what he was up against started to set in. I'm by myself, and I I turn to my right and turn to my left, and there are no other lawyers in my office. It's me, (laughs) okay? And so, um, and I don't have a bunch of money. It's not like Alan wanted to be working alone. Early on, before he had even met Dean, he tried to bring other, more experienced lawyers onto the case. Friends of his father. I asked for a meeting of all of my dad's attorneys, trial attorney friends, through the years that I'd grown up with, going to Ole Miss games, going to parties, going on trips, tobacco lawyers. Nearly everyone in that room, there were probably 20 lawyers in that room, and me. He even got Dr. Kramer and his pathologist on the phone to describe their research on finding talc in women's ovaries. And every one of them after that said, this isn't a surefire thing, and therefore we're not investing a dime in it. (laughs) And I'm just like, devastated in my opinion of kind of the collective room was it had to be 100% signed, sealed, delivered. You know, they wanted absolute 100% certainty before they'd get involved, no risk whatsoever. These were lawyers with decades of experience. They had taken on big tobacco and won. But they turned Allen down. 
I was very, very hurt because these were all my dad's best friends that I grew up going to Ole Miss football games with and tailgating with, that I'd gone on cruises and family trips with when I was younger, had gone over and spent the night at their houses because they had sons that were my age that went to school with me and, and whatnot. So these weren't just random you know, successful trial attorneys that I picked for this meeting to pitch this uh, litigation to. These were people that I knew very, very well. These lawyers knew firsthand what it's like to take on a global corporation, how difficult the cases are, how long they take, how expensive they can be. And these lawyers just didn't think Alan's case was worth investing in. I walked out of that room and, you know, it almost made me second guess myself. Like, what am I doing? Is this really right? How can I be right and all of them be wrong? And I thought that for about 20 seconds. I knew I was right. I swear to God, I don't know. I can't explain it. I don't know how to explain it. I don't know what it was. But I knew I was 100% right and I knew every one of them were 100% wrong. But now, as Alan was getting ready for the trial, he didn't feel so confident anymore. The case was taking over his life, and it wasn't easy explaining to his wife, who he'd just married, why they couldn't go out to dinner or on trips with their friends. The pressure was getting intense. And about two weeks before the trial, he reached a pretty dark place. It was like 8 o'clock at night, and I remember I was at my office, and I was I was almost having a mental breakdown. It just overwhelmed me. I was just thinking of, I know I'm getting ready to walk into this place that's very foreign to me, South Dakota. I'm in federal court that's very strict and by the book. I've never tried a case in federal court. I know the issues that I'm dealing with. I knew the significance of the case that I was dealing with, that it's going to affect other lawyers and other women down the road that I was setting precedents for. And then I knew that I was going to walk in and there were going to be 30 lawyers on the other side with 20 paralegals from all over the country, and it was going to be me and my paralegal. And I just sat there, and I was just, I just got overwhelmed. So the only thing I knew to do was to call Greg Eastland, my local lawyer in South Dakota, just a prince of a guy. And I just broke down and started crying. And I just said, I don't, I don't think I can do this. It's too much. I can't do this. You know, I just, I just, it all just hit me at once of what I was facing. Next time on Verified. That is pretty scary when you get up there and you've got to take the oath and you're sitting next to this judge and everyone in the courtroom's looking at you. And suddenly their lawyer comes up to you and starts asking you these questions. And it really puts you on the defense. I mean, you're really scared up there. Stay with us. Dust Up, our second season of Verified, is reported by Sandra Bartlett and Jim Morris. It's written and produced by me, Natasha Del Toro, Sandra Bartlett, Tracy Samuelson, Suzanne Reber, and senior producer Dan Bloom. Additional production by Grant Hill and Claire Rawlinson. Our editors are Peter Clowney, Tracy Samuelson, and Ellen Weiss. Engineering by Casey Holford and Dan Bloom. Our theme and original music are by Allison Leighton Brown. Special thanks to the many women and men who spoke with us on and off the microphone about this story, 
which spans decades. Verified is created by Suzanne Reber and executive produced by Suzanne Reber, Ellen Weiss, Peter Clowney, and Chris Bannon. The show is produced by the Scripps Washington Bureau in collaboration with Witness Docs, a Stitcher network. If you want to listen to early releases of our Verified episodes, sign up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com. You can use promo code WITNESS for one month free. There's so much for you to discover about this story and what's coming up on the show. You can find us on Twitter at Verpod and at VerifiedPod on Instagram and Facebook. And if you have a story to tell us, send us a voicemail or an email to VerifiedPod at Stitcher.com. If you like the show and believe in this kind of storytelling, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people discover Verified. Thanks for listening. I'm Natasha Del Toro, and this is Verified.